Chapter Nine of Quicksand. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Quicksand by Nella Larson. Chapter Nine. But it didn't last this happiness of Helga Crane's. Little by little, the signs of spring appeared, but strangely, the enchantment of the season so enthusiastically, so lavishly greeted by the gay dwellers of Harlem, filled her only with restlessness. Somewhere within her, in a deep recess, crouched discontent. She began to lose confidence in the fullness of her life. The glow began to fade from her conception of it. As the days multiplied, her need of something, something vaguely familiar, but which she could not put a name to and hold for definite examination, became almost intolerable. She went through moments of overwhelming anguish. She felt shut in, trapped. Perhaps I'm tired, need a tonic or something, she reflected. So she consulted a physician, who after a long, solemn examination said that there was nothing wrong, nothing at all. A change of scene, perhaps for a week or so, or a few days away from work, would put her straight, most likely. Helga tried this tried them both, but it was no good. All interest had gone out of living. Nothing seemed any good. She became a little frightened, and then shocked to discover that, for some unknown reason, it was of herself she was afraid. Spring grew into summer, languidly at first, then flauntingly. Without awareness on her part, Helga Crane began to draw away from those contacts which had so delighted her. More and more she made lonely excursions to places outside of Harlem. A sensation of estrangement and isolation encompassed her. As the days became hotter and the streets more swarming, a kind of repulsion came upon her. She recoiled in aversion from the sight of the grinning faces and from the sound of the easy laughter of all these people who strolled, aimlessly now, it seemed, up and down the avenues. Not only did the crowds of nameless folk on the street annoy her, she began also actually to dislike her friends. Even the gentle Anne distressed her. Perhaps because Anne was obsessed by the race problem and fed her obsession. She frequented all the meetings of protest, subscribed to all the complaining magazines, and read all the lurid newspapers spewed out by the negro-yellow press. She talked, wept, and ground her teeth dramatically about the wrongs and shames of her race. At times she lashed her fury to surprising heights for one by nature so placid and gentle. And though she would not, even to herself, have admitted it, she reveled in this orgy of protest. Social equality, equal opportunity for all, were her slogans, often and emphatically repeated. Anne preached these things and honestly thought that she believed them, but she considered it an affront to the race, and to all the vari-coloured peoples that made Lennox and Seventh Avenues the rich spectacles which they were, for any negro to receive on terms of equality any white person. "'To me,' asserted Anne Gray, "'the most wretched negro prostitute that walks 135th Street is more than any president of these United States, not excepting Abraham Lincoln.' But she turned up her finely carved nose at their lusty churches, their picturesque parades, their naive clowning on the streets. She would not have desired or even been willing to live in any section outside the black belt, and she would have refused scornfully, had they been tendered, any invitation from white folk. 
She hated white people with a deep and burning hatred, with the kind of hatred which, finding itself held in sufficiently numerous groups, was capable some day, on some great provocation, of bursting into dangerously malignant flames. But she aped their clothes, their manners, and their gracious ways of living. While proclaiming loudly the undiluted good of all things negro, she yet disliked the songs, the dances, and the softly blurred speech of the race. Toward these things she showed only a disdainful contempt, tinged sometimes with a faint amusement. Like the despised people of the white race, she preferred Pavlova to Florence Mills, John McCormick to Taylor Gordon, Walter Hampton to Paul Robeson. Theoretically, however, she stood for the immediate advancement of all things negroid, and was in revolt against social inequality. Helga had been entertained by this racial ardor in one so little affected by racial prejudice as Anne, and by her inconsistencies. But suddenly these things irked her, with a great irksomeness, and she wanted to be free of this constant prattling of the incongruities, the injustices, the stupidities, the viciousness of white people. It stirred memories, probed hidden wounds, whose poignant ache bred in her surprising oppression and corroded the fabric of her quietism. Sometimes it took all her self-control to keep from tossing sarcastically at Anne Ibsen's remark about there being assuredly something very wrong with the drains, but after all there were other parts of the edifice. It was at this point of restiveness that Helga met again Dr. Anderson. She was gone, unwillingly, to a meeting, a health meeting, held in a large church, as were most of Harlem's uplift activities, as a substitute for her employer, Mr. Darling. Making her tardy arrival during a tedious discourse by a pompous, saffron-hued physician, she was led by the irritated usher, whom she had roused from a nap in which she had been pleasantly freed from the intricacies of negro health statistics, to a very front seat. Complete silence ensued while she subsided into her chair. The offended doctor looked at the ceiling, at the floor, and accusingly at Helga, and finally continued his lengthy discourse. When at last he had ended, and Helga had dared to remove her eyes from his sweating face and look about, she saw with a sudden thrill that Robert Anderson was among her nearest neighbors. A peculiar, not wholly disagreeable quiver ran down her spine. She felt an odd little faintness. The blood rushed to her face. She tried to jeer at herself for being so moved by the encounter. He, meanwhile, she observed, watched her gravely, and having caught her attention, he smiled a little and nodded. When all who so desired had spouted to their hearts content, if to little purpose, and the meeting was finally over, Anderson detached himself from the circle of admiring friends and acquaintances that had gathered around him, and caught up with Helga halfway down the long aisle leading out to fresher air. "'I wondered if you were really going to cut me. I see you were,' he began, with that half-quizzical smile which she remembered so well. She laughed. "'Oh, I didn't think you'd remember me.' Then she added, "'Pleasantly, I mean.' The man laughed, too, but they couldn't talk yet people kept breaking in on them. At last, however, they were at the door, and then he suggested that they share a taxi, for the sake of a little breeze. Helga assented. Constraint fell upon them when they emerged into the hot street, made seemingly hotter by a low-hanging golden moon and the hundreds of blazing electric lights. For a moment, before hailing a taxi, they stood together looking at the slow-moving mass of perspiring human beings. 
Neither spoke, but Helga was conscious of the man's steady gaze. The prominent grey eyes were fixed upon her, studying her, appraising her. Many times, since turning her back on Naxos, she had in fancy rehearsed this scene, this re-encounter. Now she found that rehearsal helped not at all. It was so absolutely different from anything that she had imagined. In the open taxi they talked of impersonal things, books, places, the fascination of New York, of Harlem. But underneath the exchange of small talk lay another conversation of which Helga Crane was sharply aware. She was aware, too, of a strange, ill-defined emotion, a vague yearning rising within her, and she experienced a sensation of consternation and keen regret when with a lurching jerk the cab pulled up before the house in 139th Street. So soon, she thought. But she held out her hand calmly, coolly. Cordially she asked him to call some time. "'It is,' she said, "'a pleasure to renew our acquaintance.' Was it, she was wondering, merely an acquaintance? He responded seriously that he too thought it a pleasure, and added, You haven't changed. You are still seeking for something, I think. At his speech there dropped from her that vague feeling of yearning, that longing for sympathy and understanding which his presence evoked. She felt a sharp stinging sensation, and a recurrence of that anger and defiant desire to hurt which had so seared her on that past morning in Naxos. She searched for a biting remark, but finding none venomous enough, she merely laughed a little rude and scornful laugh, and throwing up her small head, bade him an impatient good-night, and ran quickly up the steps. Afterwards she lay for long hours without undressing, thinking angry, self-accusing thoughts, recalling and reconstructing that other explosive contact. That memory filled her with a sort of aching delirium. A thousand indefinite longings beset her. Eagerly she desired to see him again to right herself in his thoughts. Far into the night she lay planning speeches for their next meeting, so that it was long before drowsiness advanced upon her. When he did call, Sunday, three days later, she put him off on Anne, and went out, pleading an engagement, which until then she had not meant to keep. Until the very moment of his entrance she had had no intention of running away, but something, some imp of contumacy, drove her from his presence, though she longed to stay. Again abruptly had come the uncontrollable wish to wound. Later, with a sense of helplessness and inevitability, she realized that the weapon which she had chosen had been a boomerang, for she herself had felt the keen disappointment of the denial. Better to have stayed and hurled polite sarcasms at him. She might then at least have had the joy of seeing him wince. In this spirit she made her way to the corner and turned into Seventh Avenue. The warmth of the sun, though gentle on that afternoon, had nevertheless kissed the street into marvellous light and colour. Now and then, greeting an acquaintance or stopping to chat with a friend, Helga was all the time seeing its soft shining brightness on the buildings along its sides or on the gleaming bronze, gold, and copper faces of its promenaders. And another vision, too, came haunting Helga Crane. Level grey eyes sat in a brown face which stared out at her, coolly, quizzically, disturbingly. And she was not happy. The tea to which she had so suddenly made up her mind to go, she found boring beyond endurance, insipid drinks, dull conversation, stupid men. 
The aimless talk glanced from John Wellinger's lawsuit for discrimination because of race against a downtown restaurant, and the advantages of living in Europe, especially in France, to the significance of any of the Garvey movement. Then it sped to a favorite negro dancer who had just then secured a foothold on the stage of a current white musical comedy, to other shows, to a new book touching on negroes. Thence to costumes for a coming masquerade dance, to a new jazz song, to Yvette Dawson's engagement to a Boston lawyer who had seen her one night at a party and proposed to her the next day at noon. Then back again to racial discrimination. Why, Helga wondered, with unreasoning exasperation, didn't they find something else to talk of? Why must the race problem always creep in? She refused to go on to another gathering. It would, she thought, be simply the same old thing. On her arrival home she was more disappointed than she cared to admit to find the house in darkness, and even Anne gone off somewhere. She would have liked that night to have talked with Anne, get her opinion of Dr. Anderson. Anne it was who the next day told her that he had given up his work in Naxos, or rather that Naxos had given him up. He had been too liberal, too lenient, for education as it was inflicted in Naxos. Now he was permanently in New York, employed as welfare worker by some big manufacturing concern which gave employment to hundreds of negro men. Uplift, sniffed Helga contemptuously, and fled before the onslaught of Anne's harangue on the needs and ills of the race. End of chapter 9